This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the British conservationist Isabella Tree about her new book, Wilding, Returning Nature to Our Farm. It's an extraordinarily fine book, Isabella, a true marriage of art and science that sheds a warm and welcome light in the darkness of the global environmental crisis. Perhaps you can begin by accounting for its origins. What sequence of events led you to the writing of the book? How did you manage to make so many connections between history and biology, between insects, birds, animals, politics, and money, and all of the connections leading to astonishing discoveries about the value of nature? Well, it's really um, a story that has just evolved um, out of necessity. Uh, my husband and I uh, inherited this estate in West Sussex in the southeast of England. Uh, it's about 3,500 acres, just 44 miles south of London, from my husband's grandparents in the 1980s. And when we inherited it, it was intensively farmed for arable and dairy. It had been ever since the Second World War, since the, the Dig for Victory campaign, which drove almost every inch of Britain to be uh, plowed up and, and put to work to produce food. Um, and we fully expected to be carrying on farming for the rest of our lives. That's what was kind of in my, my, my husband's family's DNA. Uh, but when we inherited it, it the, the estate, it was already losing money hand over fist. And we assumed, I suppose, with the kind of arrogance of youth, that it was probably down to his grandparents who hadn't invested in infrastructure and who didn't know all the latest technologies, you know, the, the latest kind of green revolution, a misnomer if ever there was one, um, but the technologies that could perhaps, you know, turn the farm around. So my husband was, was very uh, kind of dedicated to the idea of making the farm work. And for 17 years, we did what every good farmer is supposed to do. We bought bigger machinery. We invested in state-of-the-art milking parlors that looked like something out of NASA. We um, amalgamated dairies. We uh, experimented with different varieties of crops that were coming online. We even diversified into ice cream and yogurt until haagen the kind of Darth Vader of, of the ice cream producers blew us out of the galaxy. But we did all this, and even after um, 17 years, um, we couldn't make ends meet. We were still, uh, we, if anything, our, our overdraft was growing bigger. We were one and a half million pounds in debt. And we realized we couldn't go on. The, the, the problem that we always kept coming up against was our soils. We're on very, very heavy clay soils. Um, it's it's like like porridge in the winter, and in the summer when it's dry, you can literally put your your arm right down to your your shoulder into the cracks in the ground. Um, I think the Inuit are supposed to have dozens of different words for different types of snow, but in Sussex, in the ancient dialect, we have 35 different words for mud. <laughs> That's how much it governs our lives. And so we just knew we couldn't carry on farming. 
And in 1999, we made the decision. My husband made the decision. Very, very sad day. I mean, we, we, he, he made our farm manager, who was a friend, redundant, and nine other men lost their jobs. We sold our three beautiful dairy herds and all the farm machinery, cleared our debts. Um, but that's when we sort of hit upon the idea of doing something that would work with the land for once rather than battling against it all the time. And that's when we, we hit upon this idea of, of turning it over to nature, but doing it in a, in a rather different way. Uh, talk about the, the oak tree and the man you meet in Holland, and then explain the oak in terms of the history of England and what a truly magnificent tree it is. Yeah, well, this was, I suppose, the epiphany for us. It was one of the moments, at least the first moments, that a penny began to drop about what we'd been doing to our land. Um, we had a beautiful oak tree that was 500 or 550 years old, right next to the house, so um, 300 years older than the house. And um, it sort of dates back, you know, to the time, of, well, before the time of the English Civil War. Um, the land around here actually uh, is called it's called Nepa State, and it dates back to a castle that was built in King John's time uh, in the sort of 11th, 12th centuries. So, it's these oaks are are kind of have been a, a continuous um, emblem of this landscape, the great English oak, and they are huge, light demanding species. So they can't grow in closed canopy conditions. They they require light conditions in order to regenerate. So that is a sign that our landscape was always much more open than previously thought, that it's not a kind of you know, ubiquitous closed canopy forest that covered temperate zone Europe, that actually these the existence of these great oaks suggests something much, much more open. Um, and we... Uh, we were having trouble with this tree. It, it, it was, it was, it had kind of become split down the middle. And during the Second World War, the Canadian Army, who were stationed here, um, had tied it together rather valiantly with tank chains. Um, but they were beginning to fail. And we asked uh, Ted Green, this wonderful old guy, he's now in his 80s, who had been steward of the ancient oaks at Windsor, the, the Queen's Oaks, uh, to come and tell us, advise us what we could do with the tree. And he actually, you know, thought it was a magnificent tree and it wasn't in need of much help. It just needed a bit of a haircut in order to stabilize it. But he kind of turned his back on this great oak next to the house and pointed to the trees that were in the wider landscape in what had once been a, a landscaped Repton Park around the house. But since the Second World War had been ploughed up, so the land was ploughed right up to their trunks. And he said, look at them, you know, they're, they're dying back. They're in real distress. And we'd never really thought about it, but they were getting quite sort of staggy. You could see, you know, some branches were just completely dead. You know, they didn't have that lovely bloom of, of broccoli, you know, that a healthy oak has. Uh, I suppose if we'd ever thought about it, we might have thought that it was down to drought or, you know, sort of one of the, you know, the big hurricane we had in 1987. Um, but what Ted told us was that we had been ploughing for the last few decades right up to their root, to, to their trunks. So we'd been ploughing not only their, their, their roots, but we had been constantly churning over the mycorrhizal fungi underneath the soil. That was a wonderful universe of filaments that connects all vegetation together and that provides the nutrients to these plants. 
and we'd been drenching the soil in chemicals. So that was killing off all the mycorrhizae. It was killing off all the soil biota. We were essentially looking on a landscape that was clinically dead. The soil was clinically dead. And it was all down to us. So it was a huge wake-up moment. Um, We suddenly thought these trees that we had assumed would be here, you know, for our children, our grandchildren, you know, generations to come, hundreds and hundreds of years, were dying under our watch. Because nature is connected to itself in ways that we don't yet fully understand, but the machinery and the chemicals tend to kill it. Yeah, we're only really just beginning to look at the soil, at the ground beneath our feet. I'm constantly amazed how little we understand soil and how neglected it's been as a science for the last century or so. Um, You know, Darwin did this wonderful, his last work on worms, and he realized that earthworms were a keystone species and how hugely important they are in in the 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 continuation of of soil health and how everything in the world really comes back down to the soil to that little thin layer that that of of you know of of covering on our planet and we have just been neglecting it as farmers we have just been using and abusing it and assuming that we can carry on with this sort of chemical addiction and just, you know, uh, continuous cropping and ploughing every year without allowing the soil to recover ad infinitum. So you begin what what has really become a 20-year voyage of discovery. I mean, you start in, you've sold all the machinery. It's now 2000. It's now 20 years later. You let the land yeah. return to itself and regenerate the soil, and you make this extraordinary series of discoveries. I mean, you find things out about birds, you find things about insects, you find out how the the soil connects, how nature connects, how how it how the land becomes alive. So. Yeah, I think that's the important thing. I think that one of the key things in the early days was was meeting the Dutch ecologist Franz Vera. His book, um, Grazing Ecology and Forest History, was translated into English, coincidentally, in the year that we had our big farm uh, machinery sale. Um, it, it's not a light read, but it, what he's saying is, is really astonishing. And it, it's still sending shockwaves, I think, through the sort of conservation world and the, and the sort of world of, of um, biological science because um, what he's saying is that in all our imaginings of what our past landscapes looked like, look, looked like we've completely forgotten about the huge numbers of megafauna that would have been in, in our, our landscapes. We've forgotten about bison, about elk, about aurochs, tarpan, wild boar, reindeer, um, beavers by the million. And all of these animals would have been driving habitat creation. They would have been disturbing the land, churning it up, rootling, trampling, um, browsing, grazing, um, even ring barking, debarking trees, um, eating branches, breaking branches, huge disturbers in the landscape. And so what he's saying is that without these huge animals, 
really you can't lift the glider back up into the sky so it can fly again. We've got, you know, very depleted landscapes that have become very static. They've experienced what's called a sort of catastrophic shift. And what's needed is to get some dynamism out there if you're wanting to recover biodiversity. And the way to do that is to put these animals back into the landscape again, or at least proxies of them. If we've, we haven't got them because we hunted them to extinction, we can at least use their descendants or, or proxies in their place. Um, and it's those um, grazing and, and browsing animals that kickstart natural processes again, that, that really inject dynamism back into the li- landscape. They create the kind of the messy margins where all of life thrives, where you'll find your insects and your, and your wildflowers and your thorny scrub protecting birds and finding, you know, producing nesting places for birds. So that has really been the miracle, I think, from our point of view, is how if you let these animals in, you know, You don't want too many of them because they'll overgraze. You don't want too few because they'll undergraze. And then you get, you know, closed canopy woodland forming, which is, again, species poor and relatively undynamic. You want this this constant battle between vegetation succession and animal disturbance. And that creates this extraordinary dynamism. And, you know, it's just rocket fuel for, for wildlife. It's been incredible what's happened. I mean, now we have... You know, surround sound bird song. I mean, the early days, just hearing insects again, we hadn't even noticed that we were missing that. And now we're changing baselines. Even the, the, the scientists who come here to record the species that have come back are astonished by the level of sound and the amount, the, the sheer biomass that has fit onto this three and a half thousand, these 3,500 acres. Uh, talk about some of the grazing animals that you brought back. I mean, there were ponies, there were longhorn cattle, there were wild boar. Uh, talk a little about each one of those uh, species. Well, <laughs> oh, they are amazing creatures. I mean, um, we because we don't have the aurochs anymore, the ancestor of the modern cow, um, we hunted the aurochs to extinction in Europe a few centuries ago. Um, we can use their descendants, the, the cattle that were domesticated from them. And so we've used an old breed of uh, cattle called Old English Longhorn. They very much look the part because they have these wonderful up, upturned sweeping horns um, and the lovely sort of finching stripe down their backs. They look kind of wild and, and rugged. Uh, but they're hugely important as um, disturbers in the landscape because they cattle can carry 230 different seed species in their in their gut and their hooves and their fur so they're a hugely important vector for for flora you know eating eating species in one area and then dunging them out in the next possibly miles away but they're also obviously a important vector for for mineral and nutrient transfer as well uh, so they look fantastic in the landscape, uh, but they're, what's astonishing to us, I think, as farmers, when you see, you know, domesticated animals released into a landscape like ours, how how differently they behave. Um, you know, we were used as farmers to seeing cows with their heads down in a field and looking quite boring, but it's not the animals that are boring, it's the situation you're putting them into. 
that's boring. And when you release them into a landscape where they can they can puddle in the in the margins of a lake, they can bathe in a pond, they can toss their antlers in branches, they can have their calves in a in a hollow um, and make a nest for their calves. You know, and they're, they're self-medicating. They they smear the, their faces in sallow sap during the summer to get rid of insects. And you know, there suddenly you see the whole character of these animals expressed. And it's the same with the with the ponies that we have. Exmoor ponies, again, they're a very ancient breed of horse, um, closely related to their extinct ancestor, the tarpan. They look phenotypically very like the cave paintings of Lascaux in in France, which are seventeen thousand five hundred years old or so. Um, they almost look exactly the same as those cave paintings. So they're very ancient. Um, and they look quite wild. Um, they're actually, as a, as a breed, they're, they're rarer than the giant panda. But they have this fantastic relationship with cattle. And um, uh, I think Princeton University are doing a study in Kenya on the relationship between equines and bovines, which is so interesting that they found that if you have 100 cows in a certain area, um, if they're grazing with an equine, and that could be a donkey or a horse or even a zebra, they'll put on 60% more condition than if they're grazing the same area on their own. And the reason is because horses will take out the really rough grass, the kind of thistles, the thatchy, thick, tough grass that cows can't stomach. And that means that opens up an environment for the soft, sweeter grasses to come through. So you can see in our landscape at NEP, you know, the, the horses will go through a landscape taking all the tough stuff out and then the cattle will, will come in behind and, and benefit from those sweeter grasses that come through. And then finally, we've got, we've got, sorry, we've got my favorite, I can't leave my favorite, the pig, uh, our Tom, Tamworth pigs who, who are kind of doing a very good um, imitation of a wild boar. And they're, Obviously, they're sort of rootling and opening up the sward so that um, that um, allows, uh, you know, our native wildflowers to, to, to germinate and come through. So as soon as you've got a bit of pig rootling in the landscape, um, you've got a much more complex uh, sort of cover of vegetation that comes back. And so we're beginning to think that, that pigs, or at least wild boar, were also a keystone species in our landscape before they were hunted to extinction. The property, the, the, the Nep Castle, goes back, as you say, to the 11th, 12th century at King John and at the time of writing Magna Carta. And would those animals have... And, and, let, let, would those animals have been present in in the English landscape then? I mean, I, I mean the, the the wild cattle, the wild horses, and the wild boar. Well, we wouldn't have had um, wild cattle and, and wild horses then. Um, they, although I suppose the Exmoors were still roaming free on Exmoor itself in, in the west of, of, of England. Um, but in the greater landscape, um, in the sort of hunting forests, as they were called, and forest is a bit of a misnomer, at least we've, we've lost the, the true um, meaning of the word in the modern, modern day. A forest originally meant a sort of wild, open, wild area, but it would have looked much more like wood pasture. Um, it would have had these free, free um, open-grown oaks, which would have provided the acorns for, for deer and for wild boar. 
And so these great hunting forests, of which Nep was one, and King John hunted here, we know at least seven or eight times. Um, he used to come and stay in the old Nep castle, and in fact his queen stayed here a few times too. Um, that 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 was specifically for the hunting of fallow deer and and wild boar, and fallow are another um, species that we've introduced into our rewilding project. Again, with the idea being that the more mouthpieces you have in that landscape, uh, the more varieties of herbivores you can put into that landscape, the more complex the vegetation structure becomes, and therefore the more biodiverse. How many species have been brought back over the last, say, 19, 20 years? I mean, species of bird, of insect, of flower. I mean, name Oh, my God. We, name we, some. We just don't. We, we, I mean, it's, it's, we just don't know. The, the only thing that we've introduced um, into the project to, to kickstart the whole process have been the, the, the herbivores, the large herbivores. So we have the, the longhorn uh, cattle, the ponies, the Tamworth pigs, red fallow and uh, roe deer, which were already here in, in small numbers. So everything else that's come back in has just found us because the habitat and the food resources are now here. But, I mean, we we have hundreds and hundreds of different species, and the sheer biomass has just is just astounding. But some of the rarest species, the headline species, which have just been too exciting for words, really. I mean, we have nightingales, which are have declined 97% since the 1960s in Britain. We now are one of the the biggest breeding hotspots for nightingales in Britain. Um, we have. Uh, purple emperor butterflies, again, one of our rarest butterflies, huge purple butterfly, our second largest butterfly, which behaves almost like a bird. It's very aggressive. It chases blue tits. And um, if you throw a stick up into the air, it will chase the, the stick. It's It's extraordinary. It almost behaves like a tropical butterfly. And then we have Perhaps the most poignant of all, I think, from my point of view, is the turtle dove. Um, it's, it's said to be the bird that we are most likely to lose um, from our shores in the next 10 to 15 years. It will go extinct completely in Britain. And its numbers have declined just catastrophically, um, over 98% since the 1960s. So when I was born in the 1960s, growing up in the 1960s, we had 125,000 pairs of turtle doves. And, and this is a bird which is, you know, written about by Chaucer and Shakespeare. It's in our cultural DNA. We sing about it at Christmas. It's what my true love gives to me at Christmas in, in the lovely carol. Um, and we are about to lose it forever. Um, but Net now is the only place in Britain where its numbers are rising. And we had 20 singing males last year, which means we, we possibly had as many as 30 or 40 turtle doves on Nep. And they're pairing up. We've seen them because we've seen our, uh, the fledglings. We've even ringed a couple. So we know they're breeding here. And it just shows that, you know, in, in 20, less than 20 years, having gone from one of the most nature-depleted pieces of land in Britain, we are now one of the most significant areas for nature in Britain there is. So it, it really is kind of gives hope, I think. It's, it's astounded everybody, but it's certainly shown what you can do even on pieces of land where you, where you think they are, you know, you know, past past doing anything with. <laughs> but the diversity of, of, of nature at NEP and the, the sound of the bird song and the sound of the insects. I mean, this is the nature 
that, that I recognize from Shakespeare's plays. Shakespeare's yeah. Shakespeare's plays are are just filled with with nature. It's extraordinary. They are and and they're full of sound. Yes. Um they're so full of sound and people have written essays about about the birds he talks about and and it's almost as if the the, the sound of of nature is flowing through his words and we have lost that that sense of sound. Um it's something that I notice so much now. Um, living where we do is 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 in a sense now a double-edged sword because it's wonderful to be able to open the doors and go out on any given day and hear all these incredible sounds. But then whenever we go into the wider landscape, even to places where I used to love to walk, it's conspicuous how little noise there is and how how empty the landscape feels. Um, so it, there is a bitterness to it as well, as well as this great feeling of hope. It, it is, it's because it's created a, another baseline, I think, because it's shown the opportunity that is there, the potential that all land has to hold all this life. It is just so noticeable when you don't see it. Confronted with the, the, the need to produce food for increasingly hundreds of millions and billions of people, uh, I mean, could we afford to return all of the land, you know, depleted by technology and agriculture to its wild state? I mean, would we would, would the land in in the, in its wild form produce enough food? No, I mean, we're always going to need land to produce food. Um, that's that's a given. I think. Um, I think. The first thing you know we we need to acknowledge though is that we are already producing enough food on this planet for eleven billion people. Um, we waste up to forty percent of that, so we have to stop food waste it's it's criminal and it it's a completely it's 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 hardly spoken about but this the the wastage of food both in the developed world where we waste it at the production end, where we, we throw it away um, off our plates and um, out of our supermarkets when it reaches a sell-by date, when it's still perfectly edible, um, as well as all the wonky carrots and the things that we don't feel are perfect enough for us to deign to eat. Um, but also, again, in, in the developing world where there isn't the infrastructure, the, 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 the roads and the networks to get food to market and the, the, the refrigeration that's needed to, to preserve that food before it goes off. So we have to address the waste problem. But the, the single most pressing problem I think we're facing today, and it is associated with climate change, but the single most pressing problem I think is soil degradation. Um, some uh, scientists are now saying that, that we've only got 100 harvests left in the world before our topsoil is completely depleted and there's no soil in which to grow anything. So we have to move away from chemical farming and plowing. We've got to move towards regenerative farming. And farmers in the States are at the forefront of this movement. Um, people like Gabe Brown and Joel Salatin um, and David Montgomery are all um, writing, and Elaine Ingham, of course, talking about the, 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 the soil web, the food web in the soil. Um, this is the way we can farm sustainably for the future. We can actually grow our topsoils. We can produce as much food per acre on regenerating soils as we can when we're growing in industrial 
farming techniques we and with no inputs plus that soil because it's regenerating because it's healthy is actually now beginning to suck down carbon out of the atmosphere so it's a win-win situation on every level we have to shift our mindset away from chemical industrial farming into regenerative farming but alongside regenerative farming we will certainly have space for nature, um, not just in the marginal areas that are unproductive for farming, but um, we need to have nature running through our, our, our arable, our, our farmed landscapes, because we've begun to understand that having nature alongside farming actually increases crop yields. If you've got um, uh, the sort of two talking to each other, as it were, you know, you've got your pollinating insects, you've got your soil biota, they actually feed into each other and they increase crop yields. Um, agroforestry is another concept that's just coming into play where you have trees in your arable landscapes. So, the, 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 the two are very closely related and I think rewilding rather than seen as something that is detracting from agriculture is its closest ally and they can work together alongside each other. Um, E.O. Wilson, your you know, great um, American biologist in his latest book is saying we have to be more generous with, with our landscape um, and give 50, he's talking about giving half earth back to nature if we're to to recover biodiversity and recover the systems by which we live. So it's not just food that we need to produce, but we also need to produce clean air and clean water and um, sequester carbon and produce all that complexity of life that helps sustain the, the food stuff that we eat. And so that is really what rewilding can provide. Yes, and that's across all kinds of different measures. I mean, one of the, you know, leading facts of the capitalist revolution uh, is the industrial revolution is the divorce from nature. And and that's across our entire society and culture in, uh, in, in the Western world. And we have to uh, regain the connection at all at at all points absolutely and you know that 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 sense of a farmer not understanding his soils is is really profound um i was talking to a, a, an old farmer in his in his 90s who you know every day he used to pick up the soil and smell it and taste it even and he felt that the world had ended when there were closed tractor um you know, uh, cabins when you had to close your window uh, because he couldn't smell the earth as he was turning it over because he could tell everything by how it smelt. And we've even lost that connection. So I think, you know, the way that regenerative farming is is is, is coming at us, and I think it is inevitable, um, thankfully, um, but it is to reconnect with the soil again, to understand it profoundly. Um, and it's not to say that modern technology can't play a part. I think we've got amazing technologies that can 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 uh, can, can harvest much more efficiently, that can um, that can weed for us um, by automatically, um, that can store things better. Um, but I think we have to go back to understanding the soil, and that's quite a complex art. And you've done it magnificently in this 
in this book. I mean, this the the art of recovering the soil. I mean, uh, this is a book written uh, with poetic awareness and scientific observations. It's a grand and glorious book. And thank you very much, Isabella Tree, for speaking with us today about your new book, Wilding, Returning Nature to Our Farm. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Lovely talking to you. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.